Hey, everybody. It's Thursday, February 29th, a historic day here, our first ever February 29th podcast. We won't be able to do this again for another four years, Jill. It's the Mo News Podcast on this February 29th. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines and celebrate the leap year on this podcast. My husband's half birthday. In half birthdays, he's about 11. <laughs> oh, so he's a he's an August 29th Correct. birthday. Yes. Fascinating. So much is put on the what about the 5 million people estimated who are born on February 29th? You know, like, are they really only a quarter of their age? How they celebrate? <laughs> the people who aren't discussed are people like Michael. What do they do about their half birthday? <laughs> half birthdays are a big deal in this house because of leap year. Yeah, I would think so. Joe, I should say, later in the pod, we always bring you on this day in history. And given that there have been literally 75% less February 29th than every other day in the calendar, there wasn't much to choose from. So we're choosing instead to tell you the story of the leap year, the leap day, why February was chosen, how it works exactly. A lot of fun facts for you to share with your colleagues, friends, and family. You'll be the smartest leap year person at the table. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast. Okay, let's get to some news and a surprise announcement. Mitch McConnell says he is stepping down as Senate Republican leader. Who are the three Johns that could replace him? Literally, they're all named John. Because, of course, <laughs> that's also <laughs> that term is used. All three men named John who serve in Republican leadership. Meanwhile, it turns out the United States isn't the only country with political leaders in their 70s and 80s. Old leaders, as it turns out, run the world. The headline in the Wall Street Journal this morning, 70s, the new 50, Jill. Counting on it. In Texas, a wildfire is burning out of control. Also in Texas, get ready for a split screen. Joe Biden and Donald Trump are both heading to the U.S.-Mexico border today. We'll preview their trips. And the Supreme Court appears split over a decision that could have some big implications when it comes to guns in America. In South Korea, the world's lowest fertility rate plunges yet again. Mosh, what does a female pope and a black George Washington have in common? They are both products of Google's new problematic AI system. Yeah, and they're apologizing for that and updating that pretty quickly. We'll tell you about it. And remember that story about Wendy's and surge pricing? Do I remember it, Jill? It was two days ago. <laughs> well, apparently it's not happening following some backlash from customers. Yeah, we'll break it down. They claim we misinterpreted their remarks. I thought the remarks were pretty clear. And some sad news. Richard Lewis, the beloved comic from Curb Your Enthusiasm, has died at the age of 76. And as discussed, Mosh will have a little bit of a different on this day in history. Yeah, we'll take you back to the Romans, who came up with this whole idea of a leap day, leap year, and uh, Pope Gregory. It's why most of the world uses the Gregorian calendar, Jill, Pope Gregory, back in the uh, 16th century. Okay, let's start with some big political news. Mitch McConnell is stepping down as the Senate Majority Leader. He turned 82 this week and is the longest-serving Senate leader in history. In making the announcement on Wednesday... He said one of life's underappreciated talents is knowing when it's time to move on to the next chapter. But Father Time remains undefeated. I'm no longer the young man sitting in the back hoping colleagues would remember my name. It's time for the next generation of leadership. McConnell said he plans to serve the rest of his Senate term, which ends in January of 2027. 
So just to note here, while he's stepping down from leadership this year, uh, Jill, he still plans to serve three more years in the Senate. Yeah, so he was first elected to the Senate 40 years ago in 1984 when he was in his early 40s. And he got a bit emotional in his speech saying he was really thankful for the opportunity. The announcement apparently catching some lawmakers by surprise. After the speech, there was applause. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer shook his hand. They exchanged what looked like some nice words. McConnell, whatever you think of him politically, has been a very effective majority leader. He confirmed 228 judges during the Trump years, and he successfully blocked then-President Obama's pick of Merrick Garland for the Supreme Court, paving the way for a 6-3 conservative majority court. And Moshe, he mentioned this next generation of leadership. So who would potentially take his place? All right, Jill, we mentioned in the headlines at the top, uh, three men named John serve in uh, Republican leadership as his deputies, John Thune from South Dakota, John Cornyn from Texas, and Senator John Barrasso from Wyoming. I would caution, though, with the term next generation, Jill. Thune is 63, Cornyn 72, and Barrasso is also set to turn 72 later this year uh, if he was to take charge. Youngins, <laughs> by By Senate standards, Jill, I guess. And all those men, all younger than our two presidential choices, our two main presidential choices this year, Donald Trump, who will be 78, uh, Joe Biden, who would be 82 next year if he wins again and is inaugurated. Now, as far as politics is concerned, all of them are pretty close in line with Mitch McConnell, as in more traditional conservatives, uh, not MAGA conservatives. Uh, Thune and Cornyn in particular have been skeptical critical at times of Donald Trump, not quite as much as Mitch McConnell, who has a terrible relationship with Trump. In fact, Mitch McConnell leaves with basically a zero approval rating uh, from Democrats and a pretty low approval rating from Republicans right now, especially in the Trump orbit, because he's never been a fan of Donald Trump, who could win in the fall and serve four more years as president. Uh, So those are the deputies right now, the three men named John, but they're not the only people who can run. Rick Scott from Florida actually tried to challenge McConnell just after midterms a little over a year ago. He won about 10 votes. McConnell continued to serve as leader there, as you mentioned, longest running leader of all time, 17 years as Republican leader in the Senate, both through their minority period, their majority periods. And this will come as a new Congress takes shape next year, depending on how the election goes, Republicans could have the majority in the Senate, a minority again, a same thing in the House. But appears here, uh, McConnell wants out, doesn't want to do this for another term. It does come as there have been a couple health scares for him. Jill, we've noted them on this podcast, the freezes, like literally him freezing for a number of seconds on end during press conferences. He's dismissed that his doctors have dismissed it. But it's certainly a reinforced to people that he might have larger medical issues and might not be uh, equipped at this point to continue to lead the party through what are difficult times. And also the fact that the Republican Party has sort of evolved to the right of him. And so there's a lot of Republicans, again, from the Trump orbit, who feel that he no longer represents where they're at. He's more of a traditional Reagan conservative. And Moshe, we mentioned McConnell, 82 years old. He did cite his age as a reason for stepping down. But relatively speaking, political leaders here in the United States and around the world are getting older. The Wall Street Journal is out with a report that says just a decade ago, one of the world's 10 most populous countries, India, 
had a leader who was 70 or older. Today, eight of them do, putting at least half of the global population in the hands of people in their 70s and 80s. And the two countries that do not, Indonesia and Pakistan, will both likely have leaders in their 70s after upcoming elections. Part of the reason for the older leaders, at least internationally, is that autocrats are staying in power. So think Xi Jinping of China. He turned 71 in June. Vladimir Putin, who has been running Russia for nearly 25 years now, is now 71 years old. Yeah. And uh, by the way, number one on the list, uh, the leader of Cameroon, Paul Biya, he is 91 years old. Uh, Saudi Arabia has an 88-year-old king, Salman bin Abdulaziz Al Saud. But for the most part, he's letting his son, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, run the country. So effectively, a millennial is running Saudi Arabia while his father, the silent generation uh, type, the older one, is just a figurehead at this point. Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian leader, he's 88. So uh, the list goes on. Yeah, a lot of septuagenarians, octogenarians running the world here. And of course, uh, we here in the U.S. uh, have that battle between Biden and Trump. And we'll either have a president who is 84 or a president who is 86 by the end of the next term to just give you perspective there. What's interesting, Jill, in the Wall Street Journal story that, uh, again, labeled 70 as the new 50 when it comes to world leadership, they said that the leaders here are selling it as, listen, we know what we're doing. You need somebody with experience for this very complicated world where you know we're playing five levels of chess. At the same time, there's a lot of disenchanted younger people who look at uh, leaders, their grandparents' age, and say that they're not equipped to deal with the concerns, modern concerns of the 21st century, a world dealing with climate change, a world dealing with AI. And studies have shown, by the way, that politicians under the age of 50 tend to help and understand not surprisingly, issues impacting younger people. Think daycare, think parental leave, think of a variety of things that people in the workforce in their 20s, 30s, and 40s are dealing with. Again, also, if you're younger, you tend to have children. They're keeping you relevant to what's going on versus, say, grandparents running various nations. From the New York Times, the Supreme Court heard a case Wednesday on whether the Trump administration had acted lawfully by banning bump stocks, a firearm accessory that lets semi-automatic rifles fire more quickly. It was used by the gunman during a mass shooting in Las Vegas back in 2017. That was the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. The justices appear divided largely along ideological lines over whether the executive branch overstepped its bounds by imposing a ban without action by Congress. More than 520,000 bump stocks were in circulation when the ban took effect in 2019. So bump stocks, as we mentioned, enable the semi-automatic rifles to fire at speeds that rival a machine gun. The court's three liberal justices repeatedly expressing concern about overturning a ban on a device that was used in a mass shooting. Some of the conservative justices, though, question the fairness of the ban because it allows for the criminal prosecution of people who bought bump stocks while they were legal, but then failed to turn them back in or destroy them once the ban took effect. Jill, at issue here, as you mentioned, is that these devices allow guns to effectively become machine guns. Fully automatic guns are illegal. So a lot of this case will hinge on whether a bump stock actually makes a gun a machine gun. That's part of the issue here. This case does not revolve around the Second Amendment or the right to keep and bear arms. It is much more about executive authority. We've seen a number of these cases in the past couple of years. The fact that 
nothing really gets done in Congress anymore. And in this case, you have an executive branch doing things independently, whether that was constitutional here, specifically here, whether the ATF had the power to issue and enforce this ban. Now, a ruling against the ATF in this case, against the uh, bump stock ban, could limit the government's ability to regulate firearms and accessories. It'll be notable to see where the court lands here, especially as a number of cases recently have seen them limiting the uh, power of the executive branch saying, listen, you want this done, have Congress do it. You've seen that when it comes to environmental regulation, and you could see that when it comes to these bump stocks. Uh, The way this works, the justices will meet behind closed doors. They'll take a preliminary vote to see where things stand. Uh, The chief justice will assign out the uh, opinion based on where the vote is. They'll then continue to debate things. You could see some changes throughout the spring. And then, like is typical with these big cases, we'll probably get the decision the last week of June when the season finale of the Supreme Court typically happens. As I noted, some of this hinges on whether a bump stock officially makes a gun into a machine gun. Machine guns have been banned by congressional edict since the 1930s. And so the federal government for a number of decades now has extended the prohibition to parts that transform weapons into machine guns. So the bump stock would not be alone here, but we'll see how the judges effectively rule here. And just a reminder, you mentioned this all came out of the Vegas shooting in 2017. That was the mass shooting that saw several dozen killed, nearly a thousand injured as a uh, gunman shot up a country music festival in Vegas. Authorities eventually found 23 assault style rifles in the hotel room of the shooter, including 14 of them with bomb stocks. All right, plenty of news coming up, but now a quick word from one of our newer sponsors, Good Chop. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered straight to your door on your schedule. The products are vacuum-sealed and frozen at peak freshness, and this way you can stock your freezer and cook whenever you want. You could choose from over 70 high-quality cuts, 100% grass-fed ribeyes, USDA prime filet mignon. They also offer sustainable and wild-caught seafood like salmon, Pacific cod, scallop, shrimp, and more. Mosh, we made the salmon the other night. Absolutely delicious. Of course, we didn't have your wife cooking it. It was just me, but it was still good. <laughs> Jill, we both made salmon from Good Shop this week. In fact, I should note, Alex did a recipe with pistachios that was delicious. That's over on your Instagram feed. Worlds colliding, Mosh. <laughs> anyway, the seafood is exclusively from American farms and fisheries. You could support local family farms and independent ranchers right here in the U.S., and it won't cost a fortune. Good Chop's price per meal starts at just $3.74. Good Chop especially prides itself on sourcing meat that comes with no antibiotics or added hormones ever, no artificial ingredients, only the good stuff. And they are so confident in the quality of their cuts that they offer a 100% money-back guarantee. So basically, love Good Shop or get your money back. Go to goodshop.com slash monews120. You use the code monews120 and get $120 off your first four boxes. That's code at monews120 at goodshop.com slash monews120 for $120 off. And that is Good Chop, C-H-O-P. Everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. 
They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion, I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They're completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, 1-5% off your order. All right, time now for the speed read from The Washington Post. Congress has agreed on a short-term spending agreement to avert a partial government shutdown, which would kick the can down the road to fund the government once again as lawmakers struggle to reach a consensus on a longer-term deal. The extension is referred to as a continuing resolution. It will fund parts of the government through March 8th and the remainder until March 22nd. Just doing some math here, Mosh. That's not that much more, <laughs> more time. <laughs> they, they've got an extension from the professor on the paper for another week. It Joe. is February. It is the shortest month. That <laughs> We're in March, basically. Okay, this is a bid to buy leaders a little bit more time to come up with a full-fledged funding agreement for the nation's government. Yeah, without this, we would have seen a shutdown potentially this Saturday. Now that date is pushed to next, the end of next week. Uh, and then the deadline that we were going to see next week is then pushed back two more weeks. So a little bit more time. They've done these extensions since September. Uh, they have to figure out a way to fund all the various departments of the government. And the vast majority of Congress is united on this. The Senate's like, let's just move on here. We have a deal. Nearly all House Democrats and a number of House Republicans also want a deal here. But the Speaker here controls the floor of the House, and he has some members who would like to see more cuts. He has some members who are okay with a government shutdown uh, to get more spending cuts. And he has some members who recently pushed out his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, as Speaker. So if he does not accommodate them and make sure they're okay, he could also uh, be out of uh, a job just a few months after taking over as Speaker. So that's the challenge specifically Mike Johnson faces here. In the meantime, shutdown watch continues into a new month with yet another extension, which they promised they wouldn't do again, and yet they're doing it again. We'll keep you up to date as Congress turns and the budget turns here. All right. From NBC News, the Supreme Court agreed to decide whether former President Trump can claim presidential immunity over criminal election interference charges, adding a new hurdle to a trial taking place. Yeah, the court came out with a brief order saying, mark your calendars. They will hear arguments the week of April 22nd on whether a president still has immunity after their president. Trump here claiming he's got immunity for life, even for things he did as president. Uh, courts have disagreed with that assessment, and that impacts two of the trials he's facing. Remember, there's a criminal trial in Georgia. That's a state case. There's one in New York. That's a state case. The two federal cases are the classified records case out of Mar-a-Lago and the January 6th case, both federal cases. So those are on hold here. The court will rule. And the indications early on is that the court may rule against the former president here 
not wanting to give the president immunity for life, because, of course, that could mean that a president could do anything, literally anything, while they're president and never face criminal prosecution for it. Okay, this from the Texas Tribune. Wildfires are spreading across the Texas panhandle at the rate of 150 football fields a minute. So far, this fire is only about 3% contained. More than a million acres have already burned, and this is already now the second largest wildfire in Texas history. The fires are threatening towns. They are forcing evacuations of homes and businesses. The governor, Greg Abbott, has issued a disaster declaration for 60 counties. At this point, we're not sure what caused the fire, but uh, they are being made worse by strong winds, unusually high temperatures in February, and dry grass. The fire has crossed into northwestern Oklahoma. Uh, It's affected a number of state and local highways there. It has resulted in the evacuation of a hospital and a nursing home in that state. It is possible we could see some relief today. Snow is expected in part of the region, though just about an inch of snow. But firefighters are hoping that'll help them get a better grasp, some grasp, on this fire. Notably, you may have seen this headline across in the last 24 hours. A nuclear weapons manufacturing plant had to pause operations because it was pretty close to the fire. They had to evacuate non-essential personnel as a precaution, though they do know that all special materials, they call them special materials, are safe and unaffected at this nuclear weapons plant uh, in Texas. So thanks to all of you who have been sending in videos uh, and photos to the Instagram account. Please keep them coming, but of course from a very safe distance. And we hope this gets put out uh, very soon and all of you stay safe. Staying in Texas, this from the Associated Press, President Biden and former President Trump will be making their dueling trips to the U.S.-Mexico border today as both candidates try to turn the nation's broken immigration system to their political advantage in an expected campaign rematch this year. Biden will be traveling to Brownsville, Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley. It's an area that often sees large numbers of border crossings. He'll be meeting with border agents and talking about the need for that bipartisan legislation. It will be his second visit to the border as president. He traveled to El Paso in January of last year. For his part, Trump will head to Eagle Pass, Texas. That's about 325 miles away from Brownsville. Another hotspot in the state-federal clash over border security. Though we should note, Eagle Pass is a mess right now, which is why Trump is headed there. Brownsville, much more stable, which is why Biden is headed there. They have different stories to tell. Trump, that it's chaos. Biden, that he's getting it under control. So that's something notable, by the way, when Biden traveled there 14 months ago to El Paso, one of the criticisms they got is they cleaned up the city of people sleeping on the streets, uh, the mess for him to arrive for cleaner pictures of what was going on. So watch the optics. Watch the images today uh, as things transpire. Trump will make a point that he was going to go to the border first, and now Biden is mimicking him. Biden claimed that he had no idea Trump was going to be at the border, even though he announced it first. What are you doing here? (laughs) What? What? (laughs) I didn't know you were going to be at the border, even though you announced it last week. But they are going to be 300 miles away, which just reinforces to you how large the border is. It's a 2,000-mile border uh, when you go from Texas to California. And so there's a lot to manage there. That's a point that Trump will likely be making. Uh, And each side wants to tell a different story. Biden wants to say, listen, we're trying to get something done here. And Republicans in Congress now are blocking action. Trump will say, where have you been for three years? You can do more independently, just like I did. Uh, You came in saying, you're not going to build a wall. You're not going to do the things I'm going to do. And guess what? You're doing them. And uh, Congress doesn't need to give you more power. You have more than enough power. So there's a a lot of back and forth expected here because this is, again, the Michigan primary on Tuesday reinforced it, Jill. 
the biggest issue for a lot of Americans. All right, heading overseas from Reuters, South Korea's fertility rate, already the world's lowest, continued its dramatic decline in 2023 as women concerned about their career advancement and the financial cost of raising kids decided to delay childbirth or not have babies at all. The average number of expected babies for a South Korean woman during her reproductive life fell to a record low of 0.72 from 0.78 in 2022, according to some new data. As in, it is so few children that the average is less than one kid per woman. That is far below the rate of 2.1 per woman needed for a steady population. I feel like we're making women like just into baby making machines here. But the bottom line is it's less than half that would be needed to keep the population intact. It's also well behind the rate of 1.24 per mom back in 2015. And that's when concerns about issues like the cost of housing and education were even lower. The total fertility rate in a specific year, by the way, defined as the total number of children that would be born to each woman in her lifetime. And it comes despite South Korea spending billions upon billions of dollars to try to reverse the trend with that population declining four years in a row as of 2023. Yeah, South Korea spent more than $200 billion now in the past decade to try to get women and couples to have more kids. Again, a stunning number, 0.72 per woman, really per couple there. And you need that 2.1 number. If there's two of you, you need to, uh, on average, create 2.1 kids to keep just a basic steady population. And by the way, population uh, is important to economic growth, to larger growth as a country. And so if your population is dwindling, typically the economy goes in the same direction. So in Korea, as they've spent hundreds of billions of dollars, couples have been showered with cash, monthly handouts, subsidized housing, free taxis. They're even considering free daycare for families, flying in nannies, uh, saying the government will cover your nannies too if you have children. Hospital bills are covered. IVF is covered. In South Korea, both men and women are each entitled to a year's leave, parental leave, in the first eight years of a child's life. And yet with all that, they still are facing this issue. Why? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. South Korea has the worst gender pay gap in the developed world. Korean women bring home about two-thirds the income of men. And so for them, for many Korean women, they're like, if I'm going to lose my professional status, if I'm not going to be paid as much, then I'm not going to have kids. And so as much as they shower these incentives on uh, women there, on couples there, there's a larger underlying issue of what's happening in the office for women before many of them say that they're willing to have kids. So the government here says they're going to tackle this head on. There's elections coming in Korea this year. They have vowed to do even more in terms of incentives to get people to have kids. But at the same time, that larger issue of professional stunting and regression for women in the workplace appears based on the interviews that we're reading to be the major issue there. South Korea, by the way, not alone in their demographic crisis, but the most stark in the developed world. They have a population of about 51 million today. That's on track to be cut in half by the end of the century. So within about 60 years here, Jill, population will be about 25 million in South Korea. Right now, the trend line continues to go down. They believe it'll be 0.68 this year per uh, woman. So about 60% of a child per mom in South Korea. Uh, But in neighboring Japan, the birth rate continues to dwindle there. Jill, we did a story when I was at CBS a couple of years ago about just abandoned towns, abandoned schools there uh, in a lot of places where they're just not having kids anymore. They have a replacement rate of 1.26, also below the 2.1 you need. 
In China, it's down to 1.09. We've covered that. And in the US, it's just about 1.66 right now. And so again, that's also below the uh, stable population rate. But in the US, you do have a lot of immigration coming in, whereas a lot of these countries uh, have very uh, limited migration and immigration that come into their country, which is why the US is slightly less concerned right now about the fertility rate in the population. All right, so some tech news from Semaphore. Let's talk about the AI app problems at Google. The CEO of Google, Sundar Pichai, addressing the controversy related to their AI app. It's called Gemini and some problematic responses around race. The CEO saying it was unacceptable and vowing to make structural changes to fix the problem. Google suspended its Gemini image creation tool last week after it generated embarrassing and offensive results in some cases, declining to depict white people or inserting photos of women or people of color when prompted to create images of Vikings, Nazis, and the Pope. Jill, in addition to depicting black Nazis, they also put out pictures of the founding fathers as Native Americans and George Washington as an African American, uh, confusing a lot of users. So this controversy really spiraled when Gemini was found to be creating questionable text responses, like equating Elon Musk's influence on society with Adolf Hitler's. And those comments drew sharp criticisms, especially from conservatives who accused Google of an anti-white bias. Pachai saying, quote, I know that some of its responses have offended our users and shown bias. To be clear, that is completely unacceptable. And we got it wrong. The perils of developing AI still comes back to humans who are trying to program uh, these various software programs. The company saying they've made a lot of progress. They're trying to fix this very quickly, uh, working around the clock, the CEO says, and they believe they have already made substantial improvement in the AI prompts. And this is a challenge facing every company building consumer AI products, not just Google. As one uh, expert laid out to me, nobody at Google tried to force Gemini to depict the Pope as a woman or Vikings as black people or find a moral equivalency between Musk and Hitler. At least we don't think. What this was was a failed attempt in instilling less bias, basically the AI compensating here. The way they explain it is Google was trying to teach the Gemini AI program to avoid falling into classic traps like stereotypes. Like if somebody said, give me a picture of a lawyer, they wanted to ensure there wasn't always a man or a CEO is not always a man. And so in this case, uh, clearly those prompts were not nuanced enough, historically speaking. So the AI machine was trying to not always depict a certain type of a request as the same thing every time. So hence that coding problem where suddenly they're giving you black Nazis, Native American founding fathers uh, like George Washington and uh, female popes. Generative AI, Mosh, what could possibly go wrong? Well, a lot in this case, but we're still very early on here. And at the end of the day, you know, what they're saying is that these are humans behind this trying to create dream world scenarios where they give you, you know, diverse looks, diverse images, but gone awry given the complete lack of historical context here. So they need to solicit better feedback uh, from people when you're requesting stuff. That's some of the things they're instilling. So when you prompt them to give me a picture of a, a Viking or uh, a specific founding father, Thomas Jefferson, they might prompt you with more questions in the future to ensure you're getting exactly what you're requesting. So it does show you how fast Google's moving. It's a highly competitive environment right now in this generative AI race, Microsoft uh, with OpenAI, Google, uh, et cetera. So as they're learning on the fly here, you're probably gonna see more of these headlines. 
from NPR, follow up to a story we told you about earlier this week that Wendy's was planning to implement a practice known as surge pricing, which is when companies increase the price of products and services in real time as demand goes up and down, kind of like with an Uber. But after news outlets ran stories warning that Wendy's was planning to hike prices during busier times of the day, like lunch, and then lower prices during less traffic times, company execs tried to better explain what their CEO meant when he mentioned it. Right. They're like, no, it's your fault for misinterpreting us. Let's recap here. The CEO, Kirk Tanner, said on an investor call this month that starting as early as next year, Wendy's would begin testing digital menus that would feature what he said was dynamic pricing and day part offerings. Dynamic pricing refers to surge pricing based on demand. Day part offerings, peak times of day. Now, Wendy's is clarifying that. How did you guys get that from his quote about dynamic pricing and day part offerings? We weren't going to do surge pricing, and we will not raise prices when demand is highest. That's according to a Wendy's vice president. Now, one of them saying in a statement, we did not use that phrase, nor do we plan to implement that practice. So uh, Wendy's not offering additional details here, just saying disregard the whole thing. The CEO said, you guys totally misinterpreted it. And they actually added, Jill, that they're still moving ahead with digital menus, but it's in order to offer discounts during slower times of day. So not to worry about higher prices. In fact, this is all about lower prices at certain times of day. Mm-hmm. From Variety, a big loss in Hollywood. Richard Lewis, the stand-up comic who also played a fictionalized version of himself on HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm, died last night at his home in Los Angeles after suffering a heart attack. He was 76 years old. Lewis had been living with Parkinson's disease, a diagnosis that he revealed last April. He had also undergone multiple surgeries for other issues over the last three years. He had recently revealed he had undergone back surgery, shoulder surgery, shoulder replacement surgery, and hip replacement surgery. He said, I have sort of had a rocky time. I had four surgeries back to back to back. It was incredible. It was bad luck, but it is life. Lewis got his start uh, back in New York and the L.A. comedy scene back in the 70s, uh, alongside people like Richard Belzer, Andy Kaufman. But he also became a frequent contributor doing stand-up on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I'd started a number of sitcoms and films throughout the years. He developed a a very unique persona, a self-deprecating, razor-sharp, brutally honest about his addictions, his neuroses. And then, of course, he's a close friend of Larry David, so played a version of himself on Curb all these seasons. He did take a break for those surgeries, did come back for a scene recently. Uh, Larry David putting out a statement yesterday saying, Richard and I were born three days apart in the same hospital, and for most of my life, he's been like a brother to me. He had that rare combination of being the funniest person and also the sweetest. But today he made me sob, and for that, I'll never forgive him. Jill, I didn't know that born three days apart in the same hospital, those two. Unbelievable. He will be missed. All right. We'll end here, as we do, with On This Day in History. As I mentioned at the top of the pod, February 29th. We just haven't had many of them, Jill. (laughs) So uh, there wasn't much as I dug around for various events. Uh, What I did find out in 1692, the Salem witch trials began when warrants were issued for the arrest of several women in colonial Massachusetts. Also, on this day in 1940, Hattie McDaniel became the first African-American actress to win an Oscar for her role in Gone with the Wind. So in lieu of uh, anything else on February 29th here, decided to uh, dive into leap years and leap days and what they mean, thanks to uh, producer Emily Gross for putting uh, some of these details together. So we'll tell you a bit of what you probably already know, and then some stuff you don't know. Leap years happen because of a mismatch between the calendar year and Earth's orbit. 
So while we all like to think that there's 365 days in the year, technically to get around the sun, it takes just about 365.25 days a year, Hmm. meaning every four years, you got to add 24 hours. So they keep our seasons and calendars in sync. It keeps us, for example, in the Northern Hemisphere of having uh, December be a summer month where things move all along. Also, if you're familiar with the uh, Islamic calendar, which is a lunar calendar, that, because it doesn't revolve around the sun, means that Ramadan happens in the spring, in the fall, in the winter, is constantly shifting. So things are a bit more stable with the solar calendar here. The Romans, we can thank them for much of this, uh, back with Julius Caesar 2,000 years ago or so. But it was not perfected. The leap year, the leap day, wasn't really perfected until a pope in the 16th century, Pope Gregory. Though we do have the Romans to think for why a leap day gets added in a leap year in February. I didn't know this, Jill. But the last two months of the year added by the Romans, who began on a 10-month calendar, were January and February. So the reason why February has the least amount of days, it was literally the last month the Romans came up with as they did their calculations. Moshe, I have never even thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) Because, Because you think of it as the second month of the year, and yet... It turns out that the way the Romans built the calendar, starting with March, going through December, and they're like, oh, uh, our calculations show we need two more months. So they go with January and February. And they're like, February has some less days. Okay, we'll give them the leap day. So that's where we're at every four years. We add that day. But correction on what I said earlier, the sun's orbit is not exactly 365.25 days a year. In fact, it's 0.24, meaning we can't, always add a day every four years. So they have a calculation here. Bear with me. Apparently, if a year is divisible by 100, but not divisible by 400, you don't add a day. What that meant, bottom line, is that in the year 1700, 1800, and 1900, we didn't add a leap day. In 2000, we did add a leap day. But in 2100, so just over 70 years from now, there will be no leap day if you're counting on that. February 29th, 2100 will not exist. Most my head hurts. <laughs> Bear in mind that the vast majority of the time, the rule of thumb is every four years you add a day, but because things are imperfect as we uh, spin through the solar system (laughs) around the sun, sometimes the mathematicians tell us, don't add a day. And uh, you'll have that opportunity 76 years from now. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the first ever Mo News podcast on a leap day of a leap year. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. We'll help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Still getting my head around the fact that we don't have an extra leap day in the year 2100, Jill. (laughs) I don't know how I feel about that. But the mathematicians, going back to the Romans... Tell me that that apparently is uh, is the deal here. The good news and the bad news is that you probably won't be around for it. So what, Jill? That'll <laughs> be the year of my 118th birthday. <laughs> I guess you never know. Science is advancing pretty quickly. Totally, we'll be here. We'll still be doing the podcast. Podcast will still be a thing in the year 2100. A prediction. You heard it here first. 118 is the new 100, like 70 is the new 50. (laughs) We'll have a president who's 118 years old at that time. It'll be our generation. They'll be like, these millennials, (laughs) they still think they should be in charge. Um, All right, everyone, have a great February 29th. We'll see you in March. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.